Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 16. Last week, I wrapped up with the judge Jephthah, who judged Israel for a mere six years. When he died, he was buried in his hometown of Gilead, the same town he'd been run out of as a young man. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Judges chapter 12 with the next judge, Ibzin, and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. According to the text, after Jephthah was the judge Ibsen, who held from Bethlehem. Ibsen had 30 sons. He also had 30 daughters, who all married outside of his extended family. For his sons, he brought in 30 young women from outside of the family. After judging for seven years, he died and was buried in Bethlehem. And that's it. So, a short tenure and not much recorded, certainly makes him a minor judge. Other than what's written in the text, there really isn't much more known about him. Some researchers believe that the Bethlehem referred to as Ibsen's hometown is the Bethlehem in the territory of the tribe of Zebulun, meaning in Galilee. This would mean it's different from the town with the same name in the New Testament that was the birthplace of Jesus. That Bethlehem was in the territory of Judah. There is one other potential thing worthy of discussion. The Jewish Talmud, which I've mentioned numerous times, mentions that will certainly continue. Anyway, the Talmud maintains that Ibsen is one and the same as Boaz from the later book of Ruth, but Boaz lived in the Bethlehem in Judah. As for Boaz, maybe Ibsen. It was very late in his life that he married Ruth, dying shortly afterwards, a story I'll get to in a later episode when covering that book. After Ibsen arose the judge Elon the Zebulonite, who would judge Israel for ten years. When he died, Elon was buried at Ajehan, which was in the land of Zebulun, a home tribe and destination clearly identified by his name. And that's it in the text. Just 28 words spread over two verses. There is something else worth mentioning, though, and that's the tribe that he's from. Overall, the tribe of Zebulun is noted very little in the Old Testament. There were a few from the tribe that did get recorded, though, but all of these were before the judge Elon, which makes everyone wonder what ended up happening to the tribe. They didn't go away, though, as Isaiah did make note of them. However, it seems to have been in more of a historical context. Do note, some do interpret the passage in Isaiah's ninth chapter as speaking of a future time when a true Messiah will rise out of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. When B.C. turned to A.D., this land wasn't known as either Zebulun or Naphtali, but as Galilee, and the town of Nazareth, home to the one that was still a ways off was in what hundreds of years, really a millennium before, was within the territory of Zebulun. To state clearer, the passage in Isaiah is viewed by some as a prophecy of a Messiah who will hail from Zebulun, which would later be known as Nazareth, in the Galilee region. When you wonder why a podcast about Christian history would begin with the Old Testament, think back to this mention 
in this episode. Zebulon did not go away after Elon. They just weren't as notable. When David was king, the tribe would contribute more soldiers to his cause than any other, including David's own tribe, Judah. And this was despite Zebulun being one of the less populated tribes. Back with the last well-known member of Zebulun, Elon, there really isn't much to say about him. Like several of his predecessors, he barely warranted a mention, likely meaning his life and times were relatively peaceful. Moving along. After Elon, according to the text, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. Abdon had forty sons and thirty grandsons, with all of his sons and grandsons riding on donkeys, seventy of the beasts in total. Abdon would judge Israel for eight years. When he died, he was buried at Pirithon, in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. If you're keeping count, you know that Abdon was the eleventh judge of ancient Israel. So, despite the seemingly slow pace, we're making progress. Abdon's name in ancient Hebrew translates to either service or servile. Go with the former, because it's hard to imagine a lauded judge having an insulting name. Then, something relatively unexpected. Despite there being two judges between Jephthah and Abdin, some claim he restored order to the central area of Israel, quoting, after the disastrous feud between Jephthah and the Gileadites. To me, at least, this seems to indicate that judges, at least in most cases, were more regional, meaning over a single tribe or a few, rather than exerting more national influence and control using the word national rather loosely, since the nation had yet to be fully organized. His father was from Purathon, meaning he was likely from there too. And that was where he ended up being buried. As for the town, its location is unknown, though it was obviously in the territory of Ephraim, placing it in the center and west of the accumulation of Israelite tribes just north of Jerusalem, with the cities of Bethel and Shiloh nearby and within Ephraim's boundaries. Its name in Hebrew is roughly similar to the modern Feratah, which is about 7 miles 11 kilometers from Shechem. This leads some to propose that place as the location of the ancient city. That theory, though, has the usual critics. There is another thought that it's the same place as Oprah, which was Gideon's hometown. This theory is based on later Samaritan writings. Why would it be given two distinct names over a really short time period isn't explained. If this is the location, then it was atop a prominent hill with valleys to its north and west and just on the border which placed it in Ephraim. Later in the Old Testament, one of David's mighty warriors Benaiah was said to be from the town. And that's it for Abdin and his hometown of Purathon. All of this gets me to Samson, whose overall biblical narrative I've skimmed. So in this case, in the beginning, I'll refer extensively to the text, meaning Samson's history will bleed into the next episode. 
before he rose up after Abdon, and as read in Judges 13, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a Danite man from Zara named Manoah, meaning this occurred before the Danites abandoned their allotted territory to the Philistines and moved north. I'll get to that part of Dan's history when I make it to Judges 18. For now, what all of this means is that in this particular region, and in the territory Dan was trying to possess, the Danites were in constant strife with the Philistines, a theme that plays out throughout the Samson narrative and would continue into the uniting of Israel under Saul, and also play heavily into the lengthy narrative around David. Back in the Samson narrative, Manoah and his wife had no kids, at least not yet. Then, suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to the unnamed woman, telling her she would soon have a son. But there was a catch. He had to be raised as a Nazarite. I covered this concept in Volume 1, Chapter 5, Episode 20, released in January 2020. The long story short is that he could not have wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. And no razor was to come on his head, generally interpreted not only as he couldn't shave his head, but he also couldn't cut his hair. If his mother, along with his father, could raise him while adhering to these rules, he would be Israel's deliverer from the Philistines. No pressure there. The future of the country rests on following a few rules with an unruly boy. The angel also told her that even after he rescued the people, he'd still have to live as a Nazarite. After the still unnamed woman is told all of this, she rushed home and relayed the instructions to her husband, Manoah. Manoah takes the message seriously. Realizing the task ahead, he prays, O oh Lord, let the man of God you sent come to us again and teach us what we are to do concerning the boy who will be born. And God listened, sending the same messenger to his wife, again while he wasn't there. She immediately ran back and retrieved her husband, bringing him to the angel of God. Without as much as an introduction, Manoah questioned the deity, of course, not realizing who he was interrogating, at least not yet. And his line of questioning clearly indicated he didn't quite know who he was addressing. He asked, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? A quick reply was received, I am. And there's both poetry and foreshadowing in that two-word reply, for he was and is. And in the New Testament, we would also learn he, or is quoted, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the vine. And he's also the man who gives you instructions. But there was no way Manoah and his wife could know that, as all of those other I am's were still over a thousand years in the future. In this case, he was just the man who told them what was a coming, simply that I am. Manoah said, 
Now, when your words come true, what is to be the boy's rule of life? What is he to do? The angel of the Lord told him, Let the woman give heed to all that I have said to her, meaning she could not eat anything that came from the vine, or drink wine, or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. She was to observe everything the angel commanded her. I'm guessing, though, that she was allowed to cut her hair. What's unsaid in this passage is a biological truth, one that wasn't comprehended in that era. Whatever the mother ate or drank, so did the unborn. In Samson's case, being a Nazarite would begin in the womb, which is certainly why the instructions were always addressed to this unnamed woman. Soon-to-be dad Manoah then asked the angel of the Lord, Please stay so that we can feed you a baby goat. The angel of the Lord replied, If I stay, I will not eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Then we're finally told that Manoah, and presumably his wife, did not know that this man was the angel of the Lord. Why we're told this makes sense in the very next part of the passage. Manoah asked the man, What is your name? So that we may honor you when your words come true. The reply was simple and celebrated to this day. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful. Keep in mind that even through today, many strictly adherent Jews will not say God's name, as it's considered too holy to be said by a mere man. Manoah did as told, taking the baby goat and grain offering, placing them on a rock and offering as a burnt offering. When he did this, the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, and the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame, all while Manoah and his wife looked on. It was only then that they realized who they'd been speaking with. When they did, they fell on their faces, on the ground, likely remembering what God had told Moses. Shortly after this, this thought was confirmed by Manoah when he told his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. She, though, was more sure of their future, telling him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. After this, she bored the promised son, Samson. What happened in his childhood wasn't all too remarkable, likely other than keeping the rules of being a Nazarite. The next thing we're told is that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan, which was between Zorah and Eshtile, all in the same general area where he'd grown up. And that's Judges 13. Chapter 14 begins with Samson as a young adult and heading towards the town of Timnah. When he gets there, a Philistine woman catches his eye. He then heads home and tells his parents to go get her so she can become his wife. They try to talk him out of taking a non-Israelite as a wife, but he doesn't relent. A short explanation is given, where, outside of the narrative, the reader is told that his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking a pretext to act against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel, all of this indicating it occurred during the 40 years of oppression 
following the last judge, Abdin. Simpson, accompanied by both his mother and father, traveled back to Timnah, but apparently they didn't exactly travel together. When he came to the vineyards there, suddenly a young lion roared at him. The text tells us that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and he tore the lion apart, barehanded, as one might tear apart a baby goat. I'm by no means certain how difficult that would be. He didn't tell his parents about this lion-tearing incident, which later proved to be an important plot point. In fact, he likely didn't tell anyone. After killing the lion, he continued down to Timnah, found the woman, talked to her, and still found her to be pleasing. So it goes with dating in the 13th century or so B.C. He left, but after a short time, probably somewhere in that first week, but certainly less than a month later, he came back. Along the way, he came across the lion's carcass. Inside, a swarm of bees had built a nest, complete with honey. He would reach inside, scraping out some of the honey for a snack. I guess if you're not afraid of a young lion, a few bee stings won't bother you either. He brought some of the honey to his parents, but didn't tell them where it had come from. After this, his father went to the woman, probably working out the details of the upcoming wedding. After the arrangements were made, Simpson feasted there with the young men from the region, presumably Philistines, as the text says, as the young men were accustomed to do. But where did these men come from? We're told that, too. When the people saw Simpson, probably in Timnah, they brought 30 companions to be with him. There's something else in here. If they were Philistines, then the Danites and Israelites got along well enough with the Philistines to at least party together. During the feast, Samson said to the 30 men, Let me pose a riddle to you. If you can explain it to me within seven days of this feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 festal garments. A hefty wager. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 festal garments. The 30 young men took him up on the bet. Samson then posed the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Over the next three days, they could not provide the correct answer, but they weren't giving up. On the fourth day, they went to Simpson's new wife, pausing for a second. A footnote in both the New Revised Standard and the NIV tells us that some sources say this happened on the seventh day, so the day of the deadline unpausing. On either the fourth or the seventh day, the thirty went to Simpson's wife, asking her to coax your husband to explain the riddle to us. Actually, they weren't asking, they were telling, for if she was unable to get the answer from him, they would burn her and her father's house down with fire. She then sprouted some tears, to the point that she was weeping before her new husband. As she did, she told Samson, You hate me. You do not really love me. You've asked a riddle of my people, but you have not explained it to me. He said to her, Look, I have not told my father or my mother. 
Why should I tell you? She continued the trail of tears for the remainder of the feast, so anywhere from zero to three more days. Finally, and according to the text, because she nagged him, he told her the answer. And nagged is the word used in the New Revised Standard Version. The NIV says she continued to press him. The King James reads that she lay sore upon him. That likely had more meaning in the 17th and 18th centuries. Back with Samson, after his new wife wore him down, he told her the answer, with her promptly relaying it to her people. Before the sun set on the seventh day, the thirty provided Samson with the correct answer to his riddle. His response immediately relayed to them that he knew where the answer had come from. He said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. That line is essentially the same in all three Old Testament translations I use. Chapter 14 wraps up with the Spirit of the Lord rushing onto Samson again. But this time, it wasn't to slay a lion, but thirty men of Timnah, but not the same thirty from his feast and the wager. Instead, he killed thirty others, took their spoils, and gave it to the thirty that had explained the riddle. He then returned to his father's house, red-hot angry from the whole affair. He ended up giving his new wife, the one who had betrayed his trust, to the man who was his best man in his wedding. Strange times indeed. And that's how Samson's first marriage ended, but it's not the end of his story, and I haven't even begun what's found in the outside record. All of that will have to wait until next week. Join me then, when I'll continue pushing through the book of Judges with the story of Samson. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.